Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit Paul, as usual. And today I get to speak on, well, I think it's like an intersection of, of probably three topics. Uh, one that I know, a couple of that I know sort of more about, have ideas about, and, and one that's uh, quite new to me. So it would be the intersection of, of food um, and sustainability, sort of earth regeneration. And then also perhaps we'll float away a little bit into some philosophy. Um, does that sound like a fair uh, guess about where we're going to circle around today, Andrew Whitley? It does indeed, yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to to have you. And I tend to do this, uh, ask you, uh, let you introduce yourself uh, for this by asking the pretty simple, um, straightforward, and yet um, sometimes challenging question of uh, who are you, Andrew Whitley? It's a really good open question. I would describe myself as an amateur in the French sense, but also in the English indirect sense, uh, that I'm, I've spent most of my life working in areas where I have no uh, professional qualification, but I also can reasonably say that I've spent that time, which is now over 50 years, doing things that I love. Uh, hence the amateur bit of the French element of that. And that doesn't mean to say that every day, every minute of every day of my work, I've thought, oh, I'm really loving this, far from it. But more to do with the, the sense that I've always been lucky enough to have, which is that I feel generally good about the attempt that I've made over these years uh, to do that thing that all young people and students like me, sort of from the radical 1960s, uh, trumpeted as being our desire in later life to, in quotes, make the world a better place, which of course begs massive questions as to better for whom and in what way we define the word better. Um, many people would see that in strictly personal terms and also in rather more economic or financial terms than I would um, than I would see it although actually uh, I think it took me a long time to realize that that sort of holistic thinking about there being more to life than um, just forming a career having a career or making it um, deciding on which area of activity you were going to become most qualified in and then and, and working away along the sort of conventional tra trajectory of um, work for 30 or 40 years, retire, and then do something else or nothing at all, and then die, uh, with or without a period of um, years of increasing incapacity uh, and greater dependence on other people. So what propelled me out of my professional career in the, uh, at the age of 27, 28, uh, which was making programs in the BBC Russian service, having studied Russian, into a rural life, was in fact the idea, the, the sense in which uh, as a BBC employee in those days, I was already kind of drawing my pension, that there was 
although plenty to do and the job was a good one and I really loved doing it, trying to bring information, biased, unbiased and uh, interesting information about the way the world was developing to a Soviet audience. Nevertheless, I had the sense that um, I, I was on a, a rather predictable path and likely to be promoted and as often happens in organizations, promoted out of my area of real interest into something more bureaucratic, telling other people what to do, organizational administration, that kind of thing. And of course, that was mm. very much less appealing, particularly in a large corporate environment. Much as I supported and continue to support its existence and aims as an organization against many of the attacks that are now raining down on it from uh, populist politicians in the UK. Mm. Um, so I define myself as an amateur because the, the, the love that I found in my, in my work or my sort of very halting and, and sort of meandering life direction, if you like, was to try and make sense of the things that actually I was reading about and being forced to think about as I was making programs in, in, in London in the early 1970s. And I think that there were three fundamental sources of that. They're linked to particular writers and thinkers, but actually um, there are lots of other people who kind of align with those understanding, understandings. It was just that each of these three people were able to communicate something which made me really stop in my tracks and think, oh, that makes absolute sense, you know, and I'd like to, I'd like to get a bit of that in terms of intellectual grasp of reality, but also sense of purpose of what I should do. And in this, there's a sort of leitmotif underlying that um, decision about career and activity and so on, how you earn your living, pay your way in the world, uh, which is something about my studies of Russian literature, particularly 19th century Russian literature, and interest in two very contrasting writers, uh, Tolstoy and Chekhov, where, putting it enormously crudely, and anyone who specializes in this subject, please forgive me, but I, I did write a dissertation about this, but I haven't got time to elaborate. But essentially, Tolstoy as the, uh, the entitled nobleman who wanted to redefine himself as a serf, as to understand the dignity of labor, to propound views about non-resistance to evil, to turning the other cheek as in the Bible and working that out in terms of a new analysis of power and redistribution and so on. And Chekhov, the doctor, playwright, satirist, who put his life on the line by going to the Far East, to Sakhalin, uh, during a an outbreak of um, serious disease, tuberculosis, working as a medical doctor, but also writing about uh, what we would now identify as the emerging environmental, the crisis around industrialization, if you like, where he took a very different view from, um, from Tolstoy generally. He was more progressive in economic terms, I guess, um, and science-based, but he also was able to capture that sense of desperation that something being despoiled, which was so evocatively described in his plays, uh, 
where these sort of useless people, people with entitlement, with money, gained through no work but on the back of serfdom or slavery or a landholding system that was deeply unfair, they they knew that the future was the you know the the rail track going to drive through the cherry orchard or whatever it was, but but they also regretted the passing of this, but they felt uh, personally unable to grasp the kind of political mechanisms and the uh, and the reinvention of themselves that was required to actually uh, route that rail track um, differently, so that the needs of a traditional economy and the biosphere, of course, uh, were accounted for from the vote from the get-go rather than um, desperately rescued from the depredations of industrialization that, that then followed. Mm. And I think that these three people that I mentioned, uh, they are Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring in 1962. I read it 10 years later and was stopped in my tracks by the the account of the effect of persistent uh, organophosphate and organochlorine pesticides widely used in American agriculture, which was then expanding all over the the world, really, that intensive agriculture using a lot of agrochemicals. The effect of that on, on the biosphere, and particularly that notion that she managed to convey to me in that wonderful elegiac language that she used as a marine biologist, particularly interested in the and that sort of liminal area where the sea meets the land. And she wrote about that in a way that is, is almost like poetry, even though she was a marine biologist scientist. And it's that notion that um, the sort of bioaccumulation of toxins, which seemed, you know, once somebody's explained to you that when a raptor eats a, an animal that's been eating um pesticides which itself has been eating insects that have been affected by pesticides there's an accumulation of the toxicity of those things particularly ddt in those days but we've invented all kinds of even worse things a lot of them sprayed on vietnam in the 60s of course which is kind of where i came in politically Mm. and um that the the consequence is that uh, the eggs of that raptor the eagle or whatever it may be are sterile nothing comes and therefore you have a silent spring which was the title of her book no birds sing because they're biologically wiped out by the effect of human uh, agriculture going for the wrong things Hmm. understandably wanting to produce greater yields in order to uh, stave off hunger in the world but actually failing to realize that um the answer to that question is a more equitable distribution of the available resources, not just an increase in productivity uh, if, if it doesn't go hand in hand with that fundamental idea of fair distribution. And then um, that sort of led me also into the, the works of Albert Howard, who uh, opened my eyes to the, to the notion that weeds in your garden or your farm field could be your teachers, rather than being things that needed to be annihilated in the interests of production, that they could tell you whether or not the conditions in the soil were right for the production of the particular crop you wanted. Mm. And alongside that, the notion of the mycorrhizal association between fungi mediating that exchange of sunlight, minerals into the uh, and sugars, 
coming from sunlight through photosynthesis down into the root hairs and the mycorrhizal fungi being like um, uh, benign shopkeepers, as it were, with the exchange of minerals from the soil um, in, back up into the plant in exchange for uh, energy, which goes in, into feeding the food web in the soil at the level of soil. And suddenly that all seemed to make sense to me. And it was clearly stupid if one ignored it and just said, oh, well, we know that nitrogen, potash and phosphate are required to grow healthy plants. So just the more we put on them, um, that's all we really need to know about growing food in greater quantities. And of course, the consequences of that for, for soil uh, structure and biology have been catastrophic. And just yesterday, I was looking at somebody that has published a book uh, which refers to the 60 harvests left. You know, that's a UN prediction. If we don't change course rapidly, um, we're in danger of degrading the soil so much that very little will grow in it, whatever chemicals we throw at it. And it was that sort of uh, understanding of that that sparked my interest. As somebody who already had the privilege of growing up with a big garden, parents had a big garden, so I knew a bit about gardening, but I actually then started to do it myself and practice it, as we would now say, organically, um, not using any chemicals and trying to feel my way to some sort of relationship with the soil that would be part of that healthier um, connection. And I think it was actually the, the notion of health that was promulgated by the organic pioneers of whom Albert Howard was one. The understanding that soils plant, the, the connection between soil, plants, animals, and people, one and indivisible. Somebody else wrote that, Eve Balfour said those words, but wrote those words. But actually it's these, the connection between things, which is almost as important as the as the things themselves. And so the state of health is actually a state, it's a process almost, a dynamic process of interconnectedness, balance, communication, rather than um, the absence of disease. And unfortunately, the absence of disease and how to engineer that through pharmaceuticals has been the way in which modern medicine has approached this and therefore able to completely cut itself off from some notion that the way we grow our food and what we put into our mouths three times a day has some connection with health. It seems bizarre to put it that way, but actually that really is the way in which our health systems have tended to develop and the knowledge about food and digestion and the biome and all that sort of stuff among practicing medical people, general practitioners and physicians and so on is lamentably low even now. There are just a few, a few people beginning to really try and get the rest of the profession to understand that you know, it all starts with food. Mm. The answer lies in the soil, as a satirical program used to say years ago in this country, rather dismissing this kind of backward-looking seemingly approach, but actually we now know that it was only looking backward to realise what wisdom we had lost along the way of our hubristic arrogance in assuming that we knew all the answers through a very reductivist version of modern science. And then the third person was Ivan Illich uh, and his tools. No, I've only I've only done one actually with a subset of Howard. So the second person is Fritz Schumacher, E.F. Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful with that incredible strap line, A Study mm -hmm. of Economics as if people mattered. 
opening up to me the idea that you could you could look at the process of um, economics, understanding capitalism and m market relations as being only ways of uh, exchanging goods, not as ends in themselves, because clearly they had deep deficiencies, mm. particularly their tendency to engender unfair relations between people and also to posit a infinite growth in a finite environment. And Schumacher was actually president of the Soil Association, a small organic organization, which led me to join that organization and to be active in it for quite a few years. And, um, and finally, Ivan Illich, whose works from, uh, on education and transport and so on were massively eye-opening. The particular one that I, uh, that, that sort of rounded off my direction, change of direction was called Tools for Conviviality, where he actually just asked really challenging questions about why we develop technologies in the way that we do and whether or not we might sort of pause to evaluate whether or not they serve uh, good ends or bad ends, you know, who controls them ultimately, but also what are they actually doing to us? Is there a way in which a certain level of automation simply hollows our job quality or redistributes it in a way that's extremely unfair because it may privilege the skills of a, an engineer or a chemist. Let's take the bread-making example, which it absolutely did, but remove any agency, any need for skill or understanding of the fermentative process from people who define themselves as bakers and who could actually take flour and water and some form of raising agent, yeast or sourdough, and without any literacy or numeracy, turn that into life-giving, wholesome bread. And that knowledge was being um, extracted from them and their peers, parceled out via software and engineering and a degree of um, chemistry as well, biochemistry, so additives and things like that, to, to create an industrial bread-making system, system which was massively more productive in terms of output per person, but uh, had certain very obvious negative qualities because in order to actually make the raw material flour, which is a natural product, even though it may be highly refined, but it, its origins are in the natural world. And so it will carry a natural variability, which has to be ironed out by the ultra processing system in order to make it fit for the machine. And, you know, it was that ability that I felt I, Ivan Illich had, had given me to, to stand up against the machine, really, to, to understand the, the kind of numb stupidity of machines. Even, even now, when we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence and so on, you know, it, it's, it's actually hard to imagine uh, how there would be any sense in making a machine that had the the sophistication of a baker engaging in real time with the dough in his hands, feeling the degree to which it's sticky or too dry or too wet, or changing volumetrically as he's cutting through it, she or he's mm -hmm. cutting through it, putting it on the scales, all those things that I did in a, in a way that actually 
in my early career, I felt was actually rather robotic before I understood that actually, no, it wasn't at all. This was art. This was not mechanics or science. This was me, the equivalent, albeit at a sort of mundane, rather earthy level, uh, trying to do what a, a violinist does by practicing endless scales, which sound to the outsider like exactly the same notes again and again and again, but each of which I understood was an attempt at perfection. And I owe that that understanding to Richard Sennett, who wrote a wonderful book about craft called The Craftsman. Mm. And, you know, that was that was such an eye-opener to me. It was it was something which um re enabled me to redefine some of the things I'd been a little bit ashamed of, if you like, in in parking what I suppose was my sort of the investment in my intellectual career or my abilities, if you like, in that way, mm-hmm. um, and doing something that was very manual and very seemingly repetitive. Suddenly, I, I kind of mm. made that that connection, had my own aha moment about, about the kind of work that had satisfied me and that I could easily imagine could satisfy other people. And this was not about rubbishing uh, the work of engineers or technologists uh, or even chemists. It was just asking them to join with me in putting the, the cart behind the horse again and saying, what is the purpose? What are we actually trying to do here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, this crops up again and again with new technologies, some of which are enormously enabling for humanity to make things better for everybody without despoiling the earth, some of which seem to be being pursued because they have um, a certain cachet or sexiness in, in, a, in a scientific community. I'm thinking of gene editing, which alongside its earlier yeah. um, bad big brother or wicked uncle genetic modification is a technology that certainly in the food and agriculture arena is constantly looking for an application and has come up in the most unsound scientific way, it seems to me, with justifications such as, well, there are going to be 9 billion people on the world in the world in 2050. We need 67% more food to feed them. A lie, a completely mm-hmm. wrong. And therefore, we need this technology to enable that to happen. I mean, the number of false connections and arguments in that is, uh, if ordinary people with no particular expertise like me can see that, uh, the falsity of that argument, it does make you question what these very bright people who can do this incredibly specific stuff with DNA, what, what is what is driving them? You know, why can't they apply that level of specific intelligence to the overview of what the bloody hell they're doing with their lives? You know, are they trying to make the world better for everybody or are they dancing to the tune of, of some corporate investor or funder? or indeed of a, of a sort of biotechnology sector, which has lost its mind um, and is working against the interests of their fellow citizens. What I was picking up on was a, like an unwillingness to be boxed in and, and, and like an unlimited relationality. So it's like I've recently been listening to uh, Nora Bateson who is then, you know, the third generation of like system thinkers uh, after her father, Gregory Bateson. And like from that, also picking up, starting to read Gregory Bateson. Um, 
And there's something around like there's there's an example that's very alive for me because I just stumbled into it. It's like about the deer and the antlers, and like, and, and um, I don't necessarily have to relate the whole thing, but the question comes down to like, what's the limit of the deer? So it's like, and that's kind of the question that I'm hearing you ask to the the te- technology yeah. technologists, or if that's if that's a word, but the the technologists um, that. What is the limit of, like, how do you draw that boundary? Are you, um, can you not see that as you are changing one particular grain or one particular plant or crop um, that has ramifications, that has, that it, you know, is it, you know, is that good and bad uh, type uh, thing? Like we're taking away something that we perceive as bad um, without necessarily really reflecting on, um, yeah. yeah, the ramifications that it might have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, this is all a massive learning journey for me. And, and that's one of the great uh, sort of hidden bonuses about working in some area where you actually don't have the professional qualification. Because I, me- I remember I did a very brief stint of um, teaching Russian shortly after I'd graduated in Russian um, to university students. And it was basically a colloquial language. And I was absolutely terrified because I had had a year of uh, at Moscow University, so my Russian was reasonably fluent. But there were still massive gaps in my knowledge of vocabulary and um, and even of certain points of irregular verbs and stuff like that. And mm. I was terrified that somebody would ask me a question that, that I I couldn't answer, you know, that I didn't know the answer to. So I, I kind of seemed to weave around and try to avoid putting myself in that situation, which was not necessarily a terribly good way of teaching. I think it was far too defensive. When I started baking, well, after 20 years of baking bread and selling it for a living, uh, I started to teach people how to do it. I felt I'd accumulated a bit of knowledge which they might like to learn. And I found myself being quite uninhibited about saying, if somebody asked me a question, I said, I don't know the answer to that. That's really interesting. Let think it through from the first principles that I've that I understand now and of course those sort of understandings about the nature of fermentation the difference between yeasts and bacteria in the process and all that sort of stuff my knowledge of that took was increasing by leaps and bounds even as I was teaching people to bake bread mm. writing a book or planning to write a book mm. because I, I I was able to tap into the work of people who were doing the detail on this and had to learn a little bit of biology in order to understand actually what is an enzyme. You know, I didn't know what that was. Uh, why, why would I, as somebody who'd never studied it, you know, this kind of thing. And so I was very, I felt very much very empowered to share my, my ignorance. Uh, but also from the perspective of having, I felt a reasonably uh, critical and systematic way of building up the, the answer to a, to a question. So rather than saying, oh, you do it this way because that's what everybody does. I, and actually in my book, Bread Matters, I started at an early point saying, here are eight things that you will find in typical recipe books, which you should ignore because they actually are wrong. They are nonsense. Uh, one example, just to give you a trivial one, make a well in the flour put it in flour in a bowl, make a little well in it, pour in your yeasty liquid, and then work it slowly with a finger sort of from the outside inwards. 
that's very common, was very common 20 or 30 years ago, um, probably still is actually, in books written by people who have only ever baked at a small scale. And of course, um, it, it, it makes absolute sense if you are a person baking a stone of flour, which was what's five and a half kilos or something like that, on a farmhouse table to feed uh, 10 to 12 hungry workers with a batch of bread. And it's like anyone who's mixed concrete on the floor, on the, on the you know, cement, on the ground. You make a well, you make a, and, and you work the, the liquid, the water in carefully. Otherwise, it will shoot all over the place off the table onto the floor. But now, guess what? We're making smaller quantities and we have these wonderful things called bowls, which are big enough to contain the smaller amount of flour that we use. And mixing it up, there is no magic about the way you mix flour and water. It just has to be combined. Um, there are some exceptions to that if it's a vast quantity of water and a small amount of flour. But nevertheless, you know, the the principle holds that this was a piece of nonsense which people were told to do as though it had some relevance to the outcome. And of course it didn't. And and it was that realization that there was quite a lot about the way in which people were going about their baking, which was just being cut and pasted from the past, or indeed cut and pasted from people who who had something to sell you, an additive or a um a shortcut, which served them but didn't serve the quality of the end thing, which for me was bread, which could be an instrument of conviviality in Ivan Illich's term, uh, coming from the Latin words meaning to live with, mm. um, but meaning in English something which is very positive. It means living well with other people. There's a joyousness about conviviality, which um, it seems to me is a, is a pointer to the healthiness of whatever process is going on there, either healthy relations between people or healthy relations between the the food ingested by a person and uh, relating to their microbiome in a, in, a, in a way that supports good balance and function rather than challenging it and leading to the expression of allergies or intolerances or whatever, yeah. or overweight and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, that was the, that sense of um, having the, by virtue of not having professional qualifications, but being respectful of those who do and wanting to learn from them where relevant. But it, I felt enormously empowered to actually second guess or, or critique rather, as I just did with the genetic engineering model of, of being able absolutely to say, does this serve the greater good of this particular step or process or indeed the bigger picture? And of course, if you don't have a bigger picture, because for one reason or another, you find yourself slaving away at the coalface or the bakery bench or in the factory with no idea about the, the contribution of that process to, to the kind of world that you would like to inhabit, because nobody's actually asked you what world you want to inhabit. They've just said, you've got to earn this amount of money to pay your rent or mortgage or whatever. And this is one way that you can do it um, if you're not clever enough to get a degree and be the person who's saying how you should do it. And, you know, that sort of, that sense in which I felt that I just wanted to live 
my life in the way that at least as far as I could um, sort of exemplified the values that I would that I was propounding and suggesting that we could all get behind and the world would be a better place. And by the world, I mean the, the biosphere, actually, you know, not just the, the human bit of it, because so much of it was about how we're doing the things wrongly for the life support system on which we depend, on that precious few inches of soil, without which one of these writers, I think, probably said, underneath which is a planet as barren as the moon or whatever. And the the... I think, you know, in in my, I, this may sound incredibly naive or idealistic or both to people, but in practice, what it meant was when I was gathering around me people who were working in my bakery, because I started off by myself, and then gradually the business grew to the point where I could, I could employ other people. Um, I, obviously, I was paying them, I hope, a fair rate for the job, but I made it re- my business to try and make sure that everybody who came in was able to do the whole thing from beginning to end, i.e. mixing and the shaping and the baking and so on, with an understanding of the processes, because I wanted them to share the same delight in pulling the loaf out of the oven that they'd had a, not just one little part in, but they'd actually pretty much knew that they could do that, reproduce it at home or whatever they wanted to do. but feel that sense of fulfillment and pride and excitement that they'd been part of this creative process. And then to share my observation, probably didn't make it actually in those days, but certainly my realisation that actually it wasn't just me or my fellow baker who had done that. We were absolutely working in harmony with a whole lot of microorganisms. And if we failed to respect their role in the process, then it would go wrong and we would end up with something that might well have been saleable at a lower price, but actually wouldn't have fulfilled our objectives of making something healthy with the capacity to enliven. A wonderful phrase used by a, a writer called George Stapleton in the 1930s, who was, again, groping his way towards a critique of intensive industrial chemical-based agriculture, which he said didn't end up with bread on the table that had this capacity to enliven. It was sort of dry as dust or dead as a, a dodo in terms of something about it, which he, he felt it should have. And ideally, that's the kind of bread I was trying to make, something that people would eat less of, actually, because you shouldn't need as much bread to get the necessary minerals from a soil that's healthy and varieties that have more in them. That's part of my current interest in research and action. But also, something that would taste really good uh, without being, you know, overblown or poncy or taking it off into the area of wine appreciation. It, which, it should just kind of evoke those, those human responses of satisfaction, which, we've, which ultra-processed food have sort of wiped out, you know, seriously damaged our ability to, uh, to appreciate texture uh, and the need that clearly the relationship between fiber in our foods and digestibility and good effect in our bodies actually requires us to put a little bit of effort in. You know, if it, mm. uh, 
and I know I know this is this is something that is so beguiling. You know, as a child, I just dreamed of the day in which science could enable me to eat a pill with all the necessary nutrients in, so I didn't have to hang around at the table and learn table manners in the way that I found really quite difficult. You know, I wanted meals to be over so I could get out and do something more interesting. Of course, it's only later I understood what, yeah. what actually happens around the table in a family situation or actually in any eating situation potentially is about much more than the ingestion of healthy nutrients. It's about learning to be a member of a of a of a society, learning to take your turn in discussion and argument, being a kind of balanced human being with, as we would now say, good mental health. And that notion of nourishment being much more than just um, physical food ingredients, micronutrients or whatever, but being actually about a process, again, about connection, about balance within the process. And then that suddenly through insights given to me by, I don't know, among others, my second son, who is a choreographer, dancer, but also very interested in mm. in cutting edge science uh, and philosophy, pointing out to me that you know if you look at quantum physics and and s- small enough particles in in physics, you you find a principle which is defined by movement as much as anything else, that everything is in motion. And for a choreographer trying to interpret that, you can you can get the connection between that and humans moving and expressing things which are, uh, involve much more than just protons and electrons and neutrons and so on, seemingly whizzing aimlessly about, but actually through the human lens and through the human body, say things to us which we can't put into words and he's more than more than once many times more than once has had to gently point out to me that if he could say what he does in his choreography with words he wouldn't bother to do the choreography and for somebody who's as literal and as verbal as me that's a really hard lesson to learn but it also links nicely with my again sort of groping understandings of uh, what's going on in the microbiome, the relationship between the gut and the brain through short-chain fatty acids, GABA, aminobutyric acid, you know, which I learn about through my study of sourdough and that kind of thing, and how that can be stimulated or enhanced through the kind of patient, watchful bread-making that I've been trying to practice rather than the chemicalized whiz it up fast with a load of additives, pump it out there and forget about the negative consequences of the way in which it's it's happened. And the connection between bread and environment is so is so crucial here because as I was beginning to say earlier, the the need to standardize the raw material to make it fit for the machine mm-hmm. as at the present state of technology, it could be that you know AI and machine learning eventually does actually reproduce in real time the all the abilities of a baker and his hands and his brain and so on, his eye. Um, I have my doubts as to whether anyone will really want to have their bread made that way, actually, because mm. the one thing that the machine doesn't do is mm. express the satisfaction that you get from doing it. And so, you know, it may well 
end up by displacing a lot of people for whom that is an absolute loss. Uh, uh, and in this sort of overall exchange of things, we might have shot ourselves massively in the foot by producing more bread per, pe- per person, um, but ending up with a lot of unhappy people. Uh, and that's why in the Real Bread campaign, we, we have a mantra of more jobs per loaf, which turns the notion of labor productivity on its head and, and actually asks us to interrogate that, say, surely the idea of economic growth needs to be combined with or understood in the context of two other things than money or productivity measured by output per person. It needs to ask questions about overall job quality and satisfaction across the piece from the managers right down to the sweepers of the floor, who incidentally I think should be the same person, and that's what I was trying to do in my bakery as well a little bit. From time to time, everyone should take their their fair share of that kind of stuff. But it would also, it would ask the question, and I've lost the thread here of my previous sentence as usual, but what I'm driving at is it should ask questions about whether or not that the productivity gain that we're looking for, the economic growth, uh, is having a, a positive or negative effect on the source of the raw material, whether it be lithium for EV batteries or wheat going into our bread, because these have effects on on soil microbiology in the case of things that we grow, but also on local communities um, in and maybe in indigenous communities where where we're extracting minerals and that kind of thing, and so so always seeing it in the round and asking critical questions about whether or not that little shortcut actually beguiling as it may seem and logical from the perspective of cutting costs and keeping the price down actually might have external effects which which we're not actually even being asked to account for in our little seg- sector uh, and so we can get away with it you know but only in the sense that we ignore history and the environment and the and the increasingly short number of years we have to sort out the two major crises of our time of climate heating and biodiversity loss the nature and climate crisis it's it's so interesting because that's i mean the the whole notion of getting away with it and then as you were saying that it just pinged into my head i've been reading this book by um i think tim morton uh, timothy morton uh, who's called which was called hyperobjects um and he's he's speaking about he's really repeating that phrase like there in in this age of hyperobjects that we live in there is no way there's no other place it's all it all comes back to us like whether we 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 flush our stool out into the ocean or or like however we do it we're, we're just there's no way and and it just kind of it triggered me in this in this uh, in this context as well, and I'm also sitting on like kind of sitting smiling, listening to you, with because this this arc, this this beautiful sort of, it's almost like you've been painting a whole a whole canvas, but you've touched on so many things based on uh, a particular interest. But it's like you, you're really exhibiting uh, as you're speaking with with some you know with this beautiful skill of how how interconnected things are because you know the the grain that leads to the soil 
and then the soil that leads to the grain and the grain that leads to the flour and the flour that leads to the baker and the baker that leads to the, you know, the, the dinner table and the dinner table of people that are sitting there interweaving their relations and, and you know, getting nourished and so that they can keep doing whatever they're doing. And then that scales again, of course, all the way up to you know, the economic system or the political system or, the, or the whatever it is. And, and as we are, as we look at this as, um, as pieces, if we believe truly that these things can be reduced into pieces that can be perfectly understood and then put together, and, and that's, that's all there is, um, that does something to us. And, and your whole arc kind of, you know, is it enlivening or not? Like, is it, do we allow for life that sort of serendipity or happenstance or, or spark of, I mean, some people say eros, some people say just life, some people say, you know, whatever, a divine spark even, if you will. Um, yeah, how, how you know, it, it's so, it's fascinating to hear you weave all these threads together. And they, they're, it's a very wide-ranging picture. And sometimes I think I'm lost. And then yet they, they come back and they catch each other. And like they, they help and support each other. And they build this beautiful... Um, this- <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. My, m- needless to say, my, my family is um, less impressed by the regularity with which I use fermentation as a as a metaphor, <laughs> um, I obviously mm. slightly deliberately, provocatively sometimes, but uh, the more I've understood about the relationship between the the, the process of fermentation and the um, the similarities, for instance, between what goes on in dough or um, beer or kimchi or and the soil uh, and indeed the human gut. Mm. Mm. So there's a considerable overlap between some of the specific lactic acid bacteria, for instance, and, and fungi or yeasts um, involved. But, but of course, what you learn, the more you go into that is you get, it's, it's like being a cosmologist really, and being asked how many stars are there in the universe? You know, it's, it's absolutely unthinkable numbers. And even if you sort of press them, to quantify that on the basis of their best knowledge uh, of the of what's of the observable universe, including what the, the readings coming back from satellites which are going outwards and so on, they then deliver the killer blow, which is that actually the universe is expanding, so the number is literally infinite, and it's that sense of the infinite uh, number of units in that. Which I, which, which for me is 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 kind of unthinkable. Infinity is is really hard concept to sit with. I think you know, mm-hmm. it just is yeah. an undefinable number. But but in relation to the, the the more material things that we've been talking about, the understanding that actually the the number of bits in there. If you let's just take the number of bacteria there are in the human body. And therefore, a subset of those bacteria, a large number of them, are in the human gut. And we're told that there's more bacterial DNA than there is human, as it were, for whatever that distinction is. But if you think about that, the the, the really sort of mind-boggling reality is that it's the connections and the interactions between those, which is off the scale in terms of numbers of zeros. 
So that the idea of intervening and saying, well, if we did X, Y, and Z, particularly at the genetic level of DNA, getting as small as you possibly can, if we did that to either a wheat plant that was going into the system or indeed to a bacterium that we might want to introduce to make the system work better, if we did that uh, in the expectation that it would have these, these effects because we've done it in a test tube or something, the idea that you wouldn't at least take into account the possibility that some other interactions would occur in this absolutely infinite number of connections, like the brain and synapses and neurons and so on, you know, the, the number of firings and connections that can be made in any part of the brain is, is clearly absolutely enormous. And so intervening to try and change them rather than trying to go with the flow in a way that respects their agency uh, and perhaps tries to sort of steer almost or get into their slipstream in a way that that deals with toxicity or imperfect reactions, cancerous growth, whatever it may be, at the physical or indeed the mental uh, health levels. I, I'm I'm really interested in in how sort of standing back to observe and understand using absolutely all the techniques of analysis that we have, but but at least pausing before we think we have an answer which is too specific there. And and that's why the the kind of understanding that came in my life from reading Albert Howard about growing plants and demonstrating in a very scientific way that if you grew a field of grass forage for animals uh, in a certain way and put a fence down between that field and another one which was grown with chemicals or maybe not with the same attention to the soil biology as the first one and then put a group of cattle with foot and mouth disease on the on the one side and one's grow, eating the healthy grass without without foot and mouth disease on the other, so that they could rub noses in a situation which, where foot and mouth is massively contagious, and then report back that your healthy cows did not catch foot and mouth, this contagious disease from the ones who were infected. Drawing some conclusions about that, which wasn't about a single product that you could distill from the grass and then inject the cows with to make them um, resistant to foot and mouth, it was about creating the conditions for healthy life in the soil and therefore by extension through the plants into the animals. And, you know, I suddenly it just seemed to me to make absolute sense. And yet we've spent, well, all of my adult lifetime, the, the, the whole direction of travel has been to try and, you know, not just to ignore that understanding, but to actively rubbish it and say there's no difference between organic food and non-organic food. And here we can show this because we've done some, you know, very reductivist kind of um, analysis, which which fails to see that organics and similar similar sort of approaches are are about creating the right conditions for health. And if we had taken that approach to a health service in society, so looking at health, what was now called health prevention, or you know, ill health prevention. 
um, rather than saying, okay, we're going to make available the latest pharmaceutical products to deal with this, this, and this. I exclude, you know, um, non-communicable, I I excuse, exclude communicable disease in this because clearly polio vaccination and so on were absolutely vital, as indeed the response to COVID uh, has been in terms of um, epidemics and so on. Uh, and cont- uh, contagion, but but in terms of everything else in the system, creating the right conditions for health, it's a much more difficult thing to do than coming up with a compound which appears to have this effect on this toxin, whatever it may be. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that if we can sort of ease our way towards bringing that overall approach into some sort of harmony with the with the necessary component of reductivism that is required to to explain some of those relationships, always understanding that it's never going to explain them all because there are just simply too many possibilities there, and that we should find ways of living with that and working with that. And it, it really comes under the heading of working with the grain of nature, which many people are now using again. You know, I, I started to use that language when I was reading about all this sort of organic stuff in the 70s, uh, talking about nature-friendly farming. Uh, We didn't use that term then. We talked about going with the grain of nature and, you know, a more natural way of living. And I suppose that's why I upped sticks from London and tried to, you know, grow my own food, make my own clothes and all that kind of stuff in order to understand what that might look like from the perspective of a a late 20th century individual who's who who is conscious of all the way all the mistakes we've made all the political wrongs that have been made throughout history and particularly throughout recent history um about this sort of intractable issues of politics but but also doesn't see those as being just a question of replacing one set of uh people seeing the world in a particular way with another one with a different political agenda it's it's about a broader change in society where Collectively, as a as a human community, we 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 can sort of sign up in an agreeable way to agreeing that we w- we all want the best for everybody, for each other, and that just to insist that capitalism or communism or some alternative uh, fascism, if you if you will, is the best way of achieving this um, is not helpful because. Um, they into relatively rigid ideologies uh, of that that sort. You have, yeah, we're we're dealing in proxies. I think. I mean, that's that's another. We are we are at least at least one step removed from um, that which is actually creating the underlying value. And I mean, it goes for making electrical cars, and it goes for for everything. I mean, in in the 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 capitalistic system is interested in making capital, um, which is nothing, you know, and, and it's not, even raw materials are not um, worth anything in the capitalist system until they're materials. I mean, as they are sitting in, and of course you could have them potentially on the, but, but I, I just spoke to um, Thomas Hahn, who is working with regenerative cooperatives in, in Germany. And it's really fascinating work around getting the planet onto the balance sheet. And to be able to uh, put livability 
as one of the conditions for what we are producing, then output that we are producing from yeah. the cooperatives for the members of the cooperative. So that that is, uh, you know, part of, and then we are taking uh, workforce and we're taking capital and we're taking all these other things and then we are producing livability um, and, and creating yeah. meaningful work, if you will. Um, and it's interconnected work. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's very... It's, it is, to me, it's also what you're saying. Like, I, I'm, I'm very much on board with this idea that it hasn't got to do with a different way of doing things, but it, it, it is really fundamentally a different way of being. And, and it is a, a different way of relating to the world where, where the world is not parts, it's, it's holes. Like, it, and, and they are, they're holes within holes within holes. And, and these holes are interconnected in ways that we need to, I, I was just thinking about the, what you were saying before about weeds you know, that they are there to do a job. Like it's not just something to be removed. They're, a, they're telling us something. There's information there. Um, and we can, we can choose to understand it and, and, and really dig into it. Or we can just remove it, throw it on the trash heap and yeah. try to the, fix the, the problem. The irony of, you know, of weeds in, in agriculture is that they, you know, one person's weed problem is another person's biodiversity. And, you know, you could you can say we want to maximize or optimize biodiversity. Somebody else says, "Well, I don't want a load of weeds growing in my field and competing with my crop." Um, and so they're tending towards monoculture and getting rid of weeds. Um, quite understandably, you know, as a gardener of many years standing, I I know exactly what I think about weeds getting in the way of my crops. But um, interestingly, <laughs> a researcher in France that I spoke to a couple of years ago. Had, had looked quite carefully at um, systems of growing wheat where the space between each wheat plant was was greater than the norm and um, actually allowed non-wheat plants, i.e. weeds. They might have contained useful things, seemingly obviously useful things like clovers fixing nitrogen, which would help wheat plants to grow ultimately. But nevertheless, it, you know, they, many people would regard those as being uh, interfering with the productivity of the wheat. But he actually said that the productivity of those wheat plants spaced out further uh, was in direct relationship to the diversity of the weed burden, as they as farmers call it. So the more different weeds you have there, um, the more productive those wheat plants, albeit further apart from each other, are going to be in product, production per, per unit area. And part of the reason of that is that by giving them space, they can actually grow more like bushes with more tillers, so more heads with grain in them, compared to the very close spacings where they tend to have one or two heads at most. And by excluding that diversity, um, that you've excluded any possibility that, uh, for instance, the the bush, the sort of more bush-like structure of the uh, spaced-out wheat plant. Uh, could enable it to resist the strong winds and rain when it's carrying its heaviest head because it's not a single stalk which can either break or fall over. It's actually a bush that can rock with the wind and, and not come to such disaster. So an, an element of resilience there at a very sort of physical level. We are. That is my that's, clock, our, that's the clock. Yeah. It's very... Um, should we, can we stop now and maybe round off another time or? 
let's do that. That's, that feels feels good. Um, and I think just to just to capture that weed comment because I think what, what you were saying it was just the, um, it's something that that sounds it's common sense when you're explaining it, but it's also extremely counterintuitive. Yeah. It's not something that I could think myself to. Um, it, it's something that you have to kind of learn by experience. And as you are telling me, it makes complete sense. And there are so many problems like that. I think or so many things that we we have this desired solution that is not necessarily a solution at all. But let's let's just pause here. Right. So, um, in the ears of uh, you who is listening at the moment, um, it's just been a few seconds. But for for me and Andrew, uh, we've had a week to think and to uh, collect our thoughts. Uh, we uh, we had a hard stop, and we decided to kind of come back at this moment to to uh, pick up the threads. And I think, and and I'm interpreting this here, but I think the the where we stopped and um, where we were headed, maybe where we stopped was. We were, we were talking about weeds and we were talking about sometimes the utility of weeds and the function of weeds, which is, uh, you know, diverse. I think you actually said that, that uh, one person's weeds are another person's biodiversity. Um, and we have also spoken before about this idea of who are we optimizing for. When we are optimizing for um, a grain that looks exactly the same every time, why are we doing that? Um, and what are the consequences? And um, I would love to kind of finish that line of thought and then for us to kind of round off uh, what we started. But if we, if we stay with that weed thought and uh, the way, the type of uh, growing and farming and baking that you are involved with, uh, where the sameness of um, the grain is not a prerequisite, maybe that's even a disadvantage. Um, what what are the, yeah, lead us, take us from there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I probably alluded to the one person's weed is another person's biodiversity uh, line of thinking because um, my original introduction many, many years ago to to some understanding of what was going on in the soil alerted me to the fact that um, we actually know so little and we still know so little and can really probably know only so much about a system which is characterized by massive diversity, uh, massive numbers of potential interaction, uh, the sum total of which between you know these fungi and uh, bacteria and actinomycetes and other organisms in the soil, um, the sum total of which is uh, to generate either the right conditions or to operate within the right conditions for a state which I find it easier to understand as health. And health, you know, etymologically is related to wholeness, whole, whole health. Um, and the notion of healing is in there in the in the in the letters of the word in English. Um, and um, it seems to me that understanding that as a process rather than as a state or as the sum total of a series of um, compounds, if you like, in ingested or 
present in a in a biological organism is helpful when we when we're trying to figure out how we can maximize or optimize the the health of the system and the unique understanding of the early sort of organic uh, pioneers if you like those suggesting that a chemical based system of agriculture was likely not to to work in the long run uh, was that um, our object as farmers or growers or gardeners and by extension people who eat the product of those uh, systems should be to create the right conditions for health and that means being doing quite a lot of looking and uh, patient uh, understanding rather than uh, following the logic of uh, von Liebig and others who sort of in the early to mid 19th century figured out that if you created if you if you fed plants with nitrogen potash and phosphorus um, in relative proportions and made sure that there was no limiting factor in the in the system you would get prodigiously high yields and that that was all there was to it and so it was just a question of providing those nutrients and away you went and of course if you then source those those ingredients those chemicals from a non biological source in other words not from the weathering of subsoils and and so on or the action of nitrogen fixing plants uh, if you got them from the Harbour Bosch process, which did it from fossil fuels and still does, uh, eight tonnes of natural gas to make a tonne of ammonia fertiliser and so on. If you did that, then you you risked disrupting a system whose complexity we still don't really have a full understanding of. We just know it is a lot more complex than it seems on the surface. And that... Um, it takes quite a long time for the perverse effects of that reductionist view of you only need these compounds to be to be visible. Mm-hmm. When you ally that chemical understanding with with the kind of plant breeding which tries to reduce, um, th- th- well, whose aims are to maximise the expression of certain quite limited characteristics in a in a plant, such as high yield or resistance to a particular spectrum of of diseases or pests, then um, let alone, of course, herbicide resistance, which is beyond the pale in many people's view, um, then you you are likely to reap the whirlwind, as we now see, because the whole system is super vulnerable to uh, sudden and unexpected shocks. So you can't easily breed your way out of, um, even with super fast breeding and uh, even with gene editing, uh, which is not really breeding; it's just tinkering with the the building blocks of life and the DNA and so on. You can't uh, use that credibly as a way of overcoming nature's um, patient but uh, unrelenting ability to circumvent our best efforts when we go off on this hubristic search for um, the gold at the end of the rainbow, forgetting that. Actually, that gold is illusory if you if we think of it in terms of money or power, and uh, it's also corrupting of the whole process, including those mental processes that we bring to such a uh, such a stupid endeavour. And so, 
it's that notion of trying to be patient and create the right conditions applies equally to soils and I would argue to the cereals in terms of plant breeding, to the sourdoughs, uh, the complex fermentation systems that we can make good bread with, to the stomachs, which we are trying to create balance and good function in um, by means of attending to the complexity of the microbiome. And I would argue um, in society as well, just to complete the alliteration of all the S sounds, and um, and that diversity in society, we're well aware that there is a there is a paradox there that there's something in our human evolution which is uh, clearly to do with finding um, being more comfortable with a, a close knit group which looks outwards uh, quite protectively of itself against others. Um, but knowing that actually within the group, and of course it depends how you define the group, but within within the group, uh, collaboration is the only thing that will actually lead to any kind of long-term survival or success. And that uh, we know from lots of anthropological work that, um, assist, uh, and actually, you know, reproductive um, observation in terms of human breeding, if you want to put it that way, that societies that become too closed in on themselves um, are, not, are not healthy, do not mm. produce the kind of vigor in their population. So they need actually to interact with others. And just as way back when humans interacted with Neanderthals to, to our great benefit, um, and we perhaps were, uh, you know, we did, we did interact with them and we've got measurable amounts of DNA, uh, Neanderthal DNA in our in, in, in our systems varying a little bit, but we also succeeded in doing them in, in a way which was uh, clearly um, an expression of our, our other aggressive and rather sort of closed in tendencies. So we've got to overcome that paradox. And um, I would argue that we won't find health in either the short or the long term, unless we adopt that principle of embracing diversity Mm-hmm. With all its complexities and paradoxes, uh, in in our in the systems we use to manage our our relationship with the biosphere, and because what you're pointing to here, and and as you say it again, it's that sort of natural. It sounds so natural that the that food and health is connected, and and that that one could assist the other, and. Because what pops up in my head is is that um, I think it's Whitehead that talks about the three ways of living: one which is survival, one which is live well, and one which is live better. And and uh, the food system that we are in at the moment, uh, the stuff we buy at the supermarket, a lot of that is is in a survival paradigm. Uh, you know, and what you are pointing at is something different, um, and it, it is potentially more laborious. It will be more. Um, hours per loaf or, or, and so forth. But, but perhaps that's also, you know, what is the output that we're measuring? Is it just, it's, it's not a calorie as a calorie as a calorie. It is, there, there's something more there that you're pointing to when you're speaking to these uh, concepts, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've, I've only come to this understanding really slowly having, I've started off with a, with a sort of, um, prima facie sort of, acceptance of the the notion that uh, 
I did, I mean, it was really quite instrumental and quite self-centered in a way. I just did not want to eat things that were not food. And I could see that, you know, it didn't have to be directly measurably toxic, um, like lead might be if it got into my water or, you know, but uh, I didn't believe that uh, uh, agricultural pesticides, which were designed to kill smaller mammals or smaller organisms, would not, uh, could not uh, accumulate in the environment in such a way that, as Rachel Carson told us in Silent Spring, you know, that that whole thing that they build up because they don't break down. And um, anyone who tells you that they do um, is probably working for a, a chemical company or a pharmaceutical company. You know, the the problem is that we 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 look always for the short term effect without being too concerned about the the longer term consequences, which given that we all hope to live for many decades, um, are seminal to the argument, it seems to me, because you can't just say, oh, well, that's below the maximum residue limit of this or that um, chemical or enzyme or whatever that's regarded as essential for the production of something, or what, or a cheap food usually, um, because that might, if you spend a lifetime ingesting that, um, that might have... Uh, consequences that certainly haven't been allowed for in the dossier that you put to the regulatory authorities to get permission to use this particular substance. And so it's a kind of, I suppose I'm a, uh, a believer in the in the general principle of, of precaution, the precautionary principle, which, which asks um, QE Bono, you know, who is benefiting from this? Is it uh, do we really need to do this in order to achieve uh, the result that's being claimed for it? And that's where it's very helpful to actually ask the question, what is the problem that GM or uh, chemical ag agriculture generally is trying to solve? Um, usually it's advocates are talking about world hunger, um, but uh, frankly, that's disingenuous in a world which has been measured to be already producing enough for 14 billion people, but still sees hundreds of millions going to bed hungry and billions overfed and malnourished at the same time. That's a devastating um, analysis of a food system out of control and it's clearly not working for health uh, of anybody other than the bank balances of those who currently control it. So it, this, this takes us all the way from, you know, something as kind of soft and touchy-feely as a desire for respect for those microorganisms on which we all depend, right through to a fairly hard analysis of the politics involved and the power involved, which we will get nowhere if we don't address that. Um, and I, I hope we can address it without the kind of um, dislocations that are currently occurring when uh, in in Ukraine and 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 so on. And what Vandana Shiva actually called um, the violence of the Green Revolution, which is a little closer to to home in terms of my interests in grain and bread, the violence visited on people um, in order to uh, in it seemed. Um, to give them the benefit of greater production of grain so that um, 
periodic famines would be avoided and so on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite as simple as that. And when you look into the underlying uh, power plays and politics of it, you find that um, uh, 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 there was a, a degree of um, exploitation of uh, majorities by minorities, which has characterized human development for many millennia, really. And I think, you know, we've now got the wherewithal in terms of our understanding of these things to quietly but insistently go out there to our fellow citizens to say, hey, guys, we could do better than this if we just got real about it. And that means some of us who have more than enough agreeing to take a bit less. Uh, There's no avoiding that. I mean, the principle of progressive taxation does that, and most people have actually accepted that. It's just that in the 80s, along came a a particularly pernicious uh, ideology, which which was sort of like dangling a a sugary sweet or a £10 note in front of people saying, actually, the thing that that what we all need is um, more greedy people because somehow the results of their massive greed will trickle down to the rest of us and we'll, we'll all be healthier. But if we all subscribe to that greedy philosophy, then, of course, we get what we've reaped in the last 40 years, which is yeah, which is brilliant. And it's also the question of, like, more of what? You know, like, more of money, more of calories, more of what? Like, more of health. And, and so that's what I'm hearing you speak yeah. to. Yeah. And um, yes. I'm resisting a little because I, I, uh, I don't want to end on that kind of gloomy note. So I'm wondering if... If you would um, point people to where they could get informed, perhaps, and then also weave into that, um, like what are the first one or two or maybe three even actions that one can do to start, um, yeah, interacting with food, food as a part, as a path towards health rather than something else. Or, yeah. yeah. Well. Um... I've got two websites that I would point people towards, um, which explain some of this stuff a little bit more and not terribly well organized because they're trying to do something. They're not trying to be sort of um, just information platforms. Um, But my original one was uh, uh, www.breadmatters.com, all in one word, breadmatters.com. And that was, um, that is now a sort of slightly legacy site in the sense that I, I'm afraid I haven't and don't regularly update it. Um, it was used as a platform for um, uh, courses that I ran, bread-making courses that I ran, and uh, an online shop selling uh, baking-related equipment and books and so on. Um, there are some legacy articles of mine on that site which might, people might find interesting dealing with um, either specific things or more general uh, issues uh, in my sort of journey to understand the food system and change it for the better. Um, and then the other one is scotlandthebread.org, scotlandthebread.org, which uh, uh, is is the organization that I co-founded and I'm, I'm chair of. And it's 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 got a, quite a bit of information about what we're trying to do here in Fife, which is to uh, is action research into more nutritious grains and a milling and baking and sharing system that would see them uh, making a contribution to 
creating the conditions for health that uh, is is our aim. And we set ourselves out to be a small uh, proof of concept. We don't want to spread our particular output from a small mill here and small farming operation on a big estate. We don't want to spread that linear in a linear fashion throughout Scotland or indeed the UK or anywhere. We want to be a, a little sort of sourdough starter replicating fermentatively, if that's a word, fermentatively, <laughs> um, which in other words, like a cell dividing, um, a single cell yeast organism or fungal organism dividing um, over a period of time into two and four and eight and so on, so that each one um, does its own thing. Uh, and also reproduces by means of inspiration and example, and always the sharing of power uh, and agency and encouraging more people to take their rightful place in that scheme of things. And I mean all people, from the highest to the lowest, the richest to the poorest, the most intelligent to the least intellectually endowed, because if this is not a project that benefits everybody, then it's a total waste of time and I've spent the last 50 years uh, kidding myself <laughs> thank you so much for for this uh, conversation this is it's to me it's it's one of these you asked me I was going to interrupt you because you you asked me to say one thing that people could do and I think it's really helpful and I'm going to not surprise you at all by saying that the one thing that people can do if they're interested in any of this stuff is is what I did, actually, um, with no particular grand philosophical designs. I just wanted to make a loaf of bread for myself because I found myself living on my own after uh, uh, after leaving home from my, uh, where my mum cooked. And um, she used to make the daily bread, and I kind of missed it, and I wanted to do the same myself. So I bought a bag of flour and I started to do it, and that began a journey of discovery, which still is going on. It's such a good thing to do um, because you, you, even if you do it in the most uh, simple and sort of pain-free way, get, if you have a bread-making machine or something, buy a bread mix from somewhere, stick it in, press the button sort of thing, most people find that that's the beginning of some uh, a kind of voyage of discovery, if you like, that uh, that has several really interesting features about it. It gets you in contact with the raw materials, with the stuff that comes out of the soil, the grain, the flour. Um, and I think that actual that physical contact with the dough in your hands, who knows what that's actually transmitting. We know there's loads of bacteria knocking around, but I think there's other energetic forces that are probably going on which affect one's, one's mental well-being and, and and so on at the same time i see it rather more simplistically i think through the the notion that i i just get off on being able to do something from beginning to end it's like a story it a good story has a beginning a middle and an end and the sense of satisfaction you get from being part of that process not dominating it i i hope we all now understand but participating in it because the real agents of change here are those complex microorganisms that actually raise the bread, cause it to taste delicious, and have, of course, given us the, uh, the grain and the flour in the first place. Not to mention the farmers who grew it and the people who turned it into flour 
uh, and even the people who made the um, the machine that enables us to bake it or provided the energy uh, that fires up the machine that enables us to bake it. So, you know, that it's seeing the thing in the round and understanding that we, even as completely straightforward, ordinary people who don't fancy ourselves as being good at anything or having any real control over anything that goes on in our lives, we can actually assert a little bit of control about what we put into our mouths. And if you do this, if you find a source, agreeable source of flour from a, um, a relatively local producer, if you're lucky enough to have one, you can probably buy it um, at a really quite affordable price. And then the issue then becomes, is it worthwhile spending a little bit of time uh, getting this this dough, this flour into dough and dough into uh, into, a, into an oven that will bake it? Is it worth it? And I think that many people who start off doing that, despite other massive pressures on their time and their, in their lives, will see that by by George, it is absolutely worth it because really good things begin to happen when you take that little bit of initial, that first step into saying, I want a bit more involvement in my personal provisioning, nourishment, and what I'm able to share with my immediate family and friends and loved ones and so on. And it all begins from there. It all starts with bread, as the Russians say. I know they're not very popular at the moment, but that's only their leadership. But the the Russians who I I love and whose literature and, and language I fell for all those years ago um, have these wonderful sayings about bread, which has been so important in their culture. And it's it's in Russian, it's chlieb simu golova, which translated not exactly directly, means it all begins with bread. Bread's the start of everything. And, you know, it is... A, a simple but um, quite agreeable and tasty start out philosophy. Yeah, thank you. Because that's that is tangible. And actually, since our last conversation, I uh, got inspired. So I started my own sourdough, and and I made my first loaf of bread, and it was uh, it was acceptable. Even my kids liked it. So uh, I think this is the beginning of a beginning of an addiction uh, on my end, um, and and the taste of it compared to what I buy. Um, yeah, you can't. It's a matter of interest. Can't. What flour did you, did you use? Did you use? Oh, I, I, it's, a, it's an Icelandic uh, mill, I think. So it's, it's a, it is local flour, uh, but I used uh, both just like a white, white wheat uh, flour. And then and there was like a whole grain type, uh, type flour um, that I don't know what it's called in English properly, but I, I had a mix of, of mm-hmm. those two. Um, you know, in Iceland, I, I, forgive me if I've told you this before, but I, when I was first uh, invited to go to visit Solheimar in, in near Reykjavik, the sort of community specializing in working with um, people with learning disabilities, as we would now say, um, the I was reading on the, uh, on the plane over, actually, a, a little bit about Icelandic history, feeling that I knew absolutely nothing about the country I was going to. And... Uh, I became aware from reading this that the um, that after the mini ice age of the 14th century, and there was an inversion, slight sort of change in the climate, and it became really almost impossible to grow any grains in in Iceland. And so, 
such grain as there was, which would be rye, was controlled entirely by the Danish colonizers who mm. controlled Iceland. And it, it was therefore um, ordinary people had great difficulty in getting hold of bread. And the it was said that one of the one of the traditions was that I mean most people lived their lives in a very small sort of spatial radius because um, apart from going up to the shillings as we would say in Scotland up to the hills in the in the summer um, you know people were hunkered down in and around where they were raising their food and and so on um, but so if any traveller appeared. Um, it was an event within a community, and uh, if they were so good as to bring some flour or bread in with them, that was a rarity. And it was said in this uh, ethnography of Iceland that they would sometimes be offered the um, services, if you want to put it that way, of the eldest daughter in return for a loaf of bread. And that's a really interesting meeting mm -hmm. point of um, the need for genetic diversity the welcoming in, which I've heard from other similar situations from anthropologists in the past, um, in a in a a rather nice exchange, we would be actually rather offended by that because it transgresses certain norms now. But actually, um, an exchange of diversity uh, at the genetic level, bringing sort of new, potentially new genes into the into the community pool in exchange for some um, nutritional diversity coming in from outside is rather good. And I, I, I've always hung on to that, um, that understanding of what life was like in, in, in situation of what we would now regard as massive privation. Um, yet communities survived. They, they made their bread. They had their ways of being uh, at levels of material advantage uh, which were massively lower than ours and yet you know we're only here because they survived <laughs> and in some respects they were um, a whole lot healthier than we were um, yeah there is that saying that we we're all a result of a continuous link of heartbeats from the first people until now and there's never been any stop in that? And you're I like for. that openness to outsiders that's embodied in that as well. You know that from within what was perforce a very close knit um, community, but at some level it was understood that you you needed you needed to be open to to mixing to the other, um, and I suppose the hope was that they wouldn't come along with a you know, with a, a, a big stick to steal your crops or... or yeah, or, and there's plenty of that too in the Icelandic yeah, sagas. I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Axis yeah, yeah there is, which is why yeah. I refer to this mm. as a paradox, and I'm not overly romantic about it. Yeah. Um, just the scarcity yeah. of bread. You know, I tried to make bread from Icelandic moss. Uh, it was, I tell you, pretty hard going. Uh, yeah. Um, That's my next step. <laughs> That'll be the next loaf. I, I think I'll wait a little bit. I'll I'll, uh, I'll pass the graduation course first and, and spend a few years in this uh, in this hole that I started digging. But Andrew, thank you so much for for this conversation. This has uh, been really wonderful. And um, like I said, I think earlier in our conversation as well, that 
this um, the way that you make things, you make these nested structures. Uh, you travel between them in a way that is just fascinating to me. It's like both a zooming in and a zooming out at the same time, and it is a uh, I don't know. It's just it's just speaking to you. I get this feeling of in- interconnectedness. It becomes very real and tangible, um, and that is wonderful. So just thank you for for offering your time. For uh, saying that, uh, um, uh, it's it's been a joy to talk to you. Actually, I just I'm interested in the way your mind works and um, very gratified and actually humbled it that something that I've said in the confusing kind of spaghetti that seems to exist in my head actually makes sense.